very, very quick review of what I hope we covered last time. And I won't. Most of you were here, but just so we start from the same point. Um, my basic effort last time, aside from a general effort to show that emotions have an interesting history, and we talked a little bit about the nature of fear, my basic point last time was twofold. First, that in the final decades of the 20th century, many Americans developed a series of fears, particularly relating to the social environment, to family, developed a set of fears that were not factually necessary, focused on the safety of their children, focused on issues of crime, where measurably some of the concerns that people were expressing simply were not confirmed by objective data. That doesn't mean the fears weren't real, but arguably they went beyond necessity. Um, one easy example, which I used last time, was by the 1990s, 62% of Americans in one poll indicated that they were deeply afraid of rising crime rates in a decade when crime rates were going down. Okay, so that's point one. And point two, essential for our discussion today, later on, point two, um, at least two causes of this growing sense of fear, which I think becomes evident from the late 70s through the 1990s, at least two sources of this rising fear were, one, the various impacts of increasing reliance on television, which was not actually a slam at television per se, although I think some manipulation of emotion has been deliberately involved, but the nature of the media, its capacity for bringing emotional issues um, closer, more vividly to, to individual viewers, um, the media play a significant role in this development. And second, something that is highlighted in studies such as um, Putnam's Bowling Alone, the increasing isolation of Americans as individuals and nuclear families, the decline of confidence in neighborhood, which we discussed at some length. And again, we'll come back to those two elements, I hope, in talking about possible responses. In the period since the 90s, and I'm not going to go into a, um, a particularly formal sort of last 16-year history here. In the period since the 90s, at least two, possibly three elements have added in to the picture we established last time, although I don't think they've necessarily fundamentally altered it. Element number one, quite obviously, we collectively have been through a number of real incidents that legitimately provoke increasing anxiety. Uh, the mass shootings, Columbine was 1999, the mass shootings that the, the American that American society has, has experienced, uh, the attack of 9/11, and more minor terrorist incidents since then, both here and obviously elsewhere, are legitimate reasons that, if we were fear, fearful if we were fearful in the 90s, uh, levels of emotional anxiety might well have increased. Second, and we're all trying to grapple with this as we try to figure out the current. Um, 
election mood. Um, globalization, that amorphous but I think genuine phenomenon, may have further affected the environment in which fears developed. I'm not sure people are afraid of globalization, but I think they are anxious about it. And in a situation where arguably we were already a bit more fearful than we needed to be, this can extend the emotion. Globalization, obviously, for some people, creates a direct sense of economic threat. Not always real, but definable. It creates, for some, a sense of cultural malaise, a sense that uh, something's going wrong with a real or more often somewhat imagined American culture as a result of global influences and obviously particularly immigration that I think feeds into a climate of anxiety. And I think perhaps above all, globalization for many people reduces their sense of control, uh, creates a sense that things are happening that they simply don't have a voice in. Even if the things are not always measurably bad, there's a sense of loss of grip. So if we were fearful in the 90s, specific events, which you're all aware of, uh, a certain degree of concern created by ongoing globalization. And then finally, and this was a point we raised briefly last time, feeding, in, feeding into the mix as well is the continuance of a formal loss of confidence in government. Um, in the 1950s and 60s, or at least into the late 60s, in the 1950s and into the late 60s, upwards of 73% uh, of Americans professed faith in government, by the early 21st century, that figure was down to 19%. It's an odd phenomenon, which we evoked last time, because in periods of, of distress, for example, in responses to terrorism, in responses to natural disaster, Americans still willingly turn to the government. So it's an odd mood. But to the extent that we are no longer reassured by government, which I think is true, uh, to, the, to the extent we no longer fully, in some cases, trust data emanating from government, we increase the environment in which fears are easy to develop. I would finally, by way of background, just reemphasize uh, in a period in which historians are feeling a little bit uh, beleaguered, that this is an exercise in historical analysis. One of the ways we can identify current patterns is by juxtaposing them with past. In this case, it's a contemporary exercise that's genuinely historical, and to the extent you find it plausible and useful, um, smile next time you hear history mentioned, okay? <laughs> all right. Okay, so two things to do today. First of all, what consequences has this had? Ha what consequences have American fears had over the past decade plus? That's our first task. And second, um, to the extent that I've persuaded you that we do have a fear problem, what are some possible responses? How can we address this more constructively? Okay, first, impacts. I want to be really careful about impacts. Um, I am not trying to say that all Americans are affected by this. 
I'm not trying to say that somehow there's a, um, a crisis of fear in American society. All of the impacts that I'm going to stress are debatable. But I do think they collectively point to some genuine problems. Impact number one, and this is actually what got me into this um, line of inquiry particularly. Impact number one is on parents. To the extent that um, parents have measurably become more anxious, more fearful about their children's safety and well-being, parental satisfaction has declined. Okay. Now, there have been some good results, or at least arguably good results. In response to growing concerns about kids, parents, particularly mothers, began to spend more time with kids in the 90s than they had in the 50s, which is actually counterintuitive. Okay? It's a really interesting image of the 50s because the 50s are, you know, when women collectively had not yet moved back into the workplace, um, when the, the baby boom was at its height, and we sort of picture the 50s as this period of, of, of golden family bliss. Well, it looks like lots of mothers were in the same house as their kids, but doing something else. Okay? The 50s were, among other things, the first decade in which parents began to park kids in front of television sets and go off and do something else. Anyway, anyway, studies have revealed that beginning in the 90s, conscientious middle-class parents, and again, it's fathers as well as mothers, but disproportionately mothers, are actually spending more direct time with their kids uh, than they had at least since before World War II. And there are charming aspects to that. Okay? Um, among the amusing results is when kids come to college and you're advising incoming freshmen about what to do, the old message, as many of you will recall, was please contact your parents every so often. The new message is please don't contact your parents too often. <laughs> okay. Not all of this is bad is my point. Okay. But, but. From two angles, parental satisfaction seems to have declined in response, I think, understandably, understandable response to the growing sense of the need to hover over children, the phenomenon obviously so frequently known as helicopter parenting. Okay, first of all, uh, from the late 1960s onward, I wish we had earlier data. From the late 1960s onward, there have been periodic opinion polls about parental satisfaction. Uh, are you glad you became a parent? You know, the questions are fairly predictable, and they are sufficiently similar to allow some measurement. And fairly steadily since the late 1960s, these measurements of parental satisfaction have gone down steadily. Okay. Second, and this comes from uh, this Jennifer Glass study, which was just um, um, made public uh, a year or so ago. Um, compared to parents in other advanced industrial societies, American parents seem particularly dissatisfied. And more specifically, the gap between childless couples in the United States and couples with children in the United States the gap is more severe by a significant margin than in any of the, any of the other OECD countries. 
okay? In some of the countries, interestingly including Russia, parents are actually more satisfied than childless couples, okay? More commonly, and this is interesting in itself, more commonly there is a bit of a gap. Childless couples profess greater happiness and satisfaction than parents, but the America, we're, we're, at, the, we're at the bottom of the heap, Okay? And there are probably two reasons for this. I don't want to oversimplify. Reason number one has nothing necessarily to do with fears and anxieties. Reason number one has to do with our obvious lag in parent-friendly social and work policies. We don't provide um, clear periods of supported parental leave on the advent of a new child. We don't provide as ready daycare facilities as most other societies do. And this may be more important in explaining this gap than other factors. But the extent to which American parents feel adrift in their social environment, the extent to which they feel they must make special efforts to assure the safety of their children, to hover over their children, this is a second factor where we are clearly different. We have become clearly different from European, Australian, other societies with which we might otherwise be compared. Yeah? Uh, do they factor in the people that choose to only have one parent as to how this affects their happiness level? You mean... Uh, Yes, although our rates are actually lower than Scandinavia. So, yeah, yeah, good point, good point. You do want to look at a at, at, uh, single-parent phenomenon as part of this mix, but I don't think that's a good question. I don't think it's the primary explanation. Okay, so this first factor is the one that drew me into the the effort to examine fear and anxiety levels in the first place. And you can say, oh, okay, well, it's an interesting problem, but not necessarily overwhelming. Um, I think that greater attention to parental satisfaction would be a useful thing to um, develop in American society. It seems to me a shame that there's this gap between childless couples and parents, at least by most measurements. We don't necessarily, however, need a higher birth rate. All right. We don't. This does not necessarily add up to a huge social problem. So my first impact is, I think, pretty clearly true, contributing to an interesting level of malaise among many people with children. Whether it's a big social problem, social problem or not, is up really to the beholder. You could argue that. It's worth a little, a little attention, but not terribly high on the list. Okay. The second problem is potentially more troubling. Okay. I vowed when I was a young scholar never to get into the situation where I was somehow criticizing the younger generation. Okay. It's a uh, it's a trap as you get older, okay? It goes way back. You can you can trace this in classical Rome, and I vowed I wouldn't get into it. And I'm not really trying to get into it too much today. Many of our young people are doing just fine, OK? 
Okay. I teach them pretty much every day of the week. Most of them are splendid, or at least all right. Okay. But, 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 we have two problems for some that I think directly relate to fearfulness and particularly parental overprotection. Okay? Problem number one, which a lot of people, particularly in my racket, identify, is delayed maturation. Kids are simply moving into, however you define it, what one might call full adulthood. Kids are moving into full adulthood in their 20s rather than their late teens. Okay? Um, They haven't been required to take risks or make decisions in their teens that arguably counterparts earlier in American history did. They depend more on parental direction, and they don't begin to shake this off until early adulthood rather than late adolescence. Not necessarily a huge problem. Okay. Um, We're a wealthy society. We can afford a little lag here. But it's an interesting issue. More troubling to me is the potential, and, 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 and many people feel this is a very real connection, and I guess I do too, the probable, probable connection between heightened levels of fearfulness and parental overprotection, the connection between this and measurable increases in psychological distress among our young people. Okay. Anybody who is associated with contemporary colleges, knows that among our many problems, one of the leading ones is the annual expansion of demands on psychological and counseling services. We take in more kids who are on psychological meds every year than ever before. We take in more kids who are reporting various kinds of distress. We take in more kids And I'm talking about more as a measurable increase statistically. We take more kids who discuss their serious suicidal thoughts than ever before. We have the highest rates of child medication, and I'm talking about psychological medication, for things like attention deficit disorder of any society in the world. And we don't fully know why. But one probable connection, and again, I'm not alone in this, one probable connection is the extent to which parents are communicating to their kids their own sense of anxiety, their own sense that the social environment is risky and dangerous. Over the past six years, the most commonly expressed problem of kids coming to counseling services on college campuses in the United States, the most commonly expressed problem is simply anxiety. It used to be stress, but stress has dropped in favor of increasing anxiety. And I don't fully know what the change means. You always wonder, are they really talking about the same thing? They've simply, they're simply using a different word for it. But the the, the heavy use of anxiety is revealing because obviously it may directly say my parents were anxious 
and I am too. Um, age of puberty drops uh, fairly steadily. Yeah. So, I look. It's a good question, and I, I I can't pretend the expertise to answer you for sure. But the phenomenon of earlier sexual sexual maturation has been going on literally for a century and a half. So I I wouldn't connect it too in, intricately. No, but worth worth thinking about. Sure, sure. Okay. So we've gotten ourselves into a situation, and here's the, here's the obvious point for both the parental anxiety and the extent to which this, this may impinge on our kids. We've gotten into a situation where, as an historian, I believe I can conclude, and many child develop, developmentalist uh, authorities will also conclude, we've gotten into a situation where we simply do not rely we, should, we simply do not express enough confidence in our own children. Okay? Um, we don't, we love them, but we don't trust their competence. We think they're in an, environment, in an environment that they can't navigate successfully, and we're overdoing it. That's the basic argument. Okay. Combination of lack of confidence in kids' capacities and a sense that the environment is dangerous yields a probably measurably undesirable result. Okay? And we all know the stories of what happens with parents who try to buck the, tri buck the tide. Okay? Um, I have a daughter who until last year lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts. When her own daughter, who's a lovely child as you can imagine, uh, <laughs> When her own daughter was four, uh, she let her go to the neighborhood grocery store, two and a half, uh, sorry, block and a half away. One street to cross, but not heavily trafficked. The kid was delighted at the, at the vote of confidence, and she trotted off to the store. She made the purchases, and she was coming home, and she got arrested. Well, she didn't really get arrested, but a cop stopped her because, obviously, a kid of this sort should not be out on her own, and some parent must have fallen down on his her obligations. So the kid was absolutely, the only thing that terrified the kid about the whole experience was the cop. Okay, she was per perfectly capable of doing it. Well, we all have stories of this. You know the, the story that circulated was about two years ago in Montgomery County, Maryland, with the parents who let their kids play unsupervised in a park. Okay, free-range kids. All right. We've, 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 we've imposed on parents, and apparently we've imposed on police forces, an image of child danger, child incompetence that we probably need to revisit. Okay? The result is bad for parents. It's bad for at least some kids. Again, without going into a, a silly extreme about the deterioration of a whole generation. We do have too many kids who are anxious, who have not been allowed to fail enough before they reach adulthood and fail in bounded ways. And we've created a problem for ourselves. Yes. Well, that's well. It's a good question, and obviously, yeah. I mean, I have I have four grandchildren. One of my sets of grandkids has probably been helicopter parented, and the other, as I've just suggested, is less so. Um, 
I don't I, I don't have a ready answer for you because and my hesitation is um, well it's a personal but 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 more than that you hesitate to recommend some sort of even very subtle and and uh, cautious intervention in parental styles you could end up disrupting relationships more than you help them so I don't have a systematic I mean my biggest thing is now I now take my my helicopter set of grandkids, I now take them on a trip every year and give them a little more leeway. But I don't defy parental norms. And we never parental. Well, and that's, I mean, we, 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 all know, we, we all know what the game, well, the parents know what's going on too. They, they, know, they know we're doing it. But I, this is not a major revision in the way they're being, being raised. It, it would be inappropriate. Yeah, well, I mean, that's part, of, that's part of the picture I tried to draw particularly last time, that we have become more afraid of strangers, all right, without any factual base. There's no evidence that strangers are more likely to interfere with children now than they were 50 years ago. There is always a danger. This is the, this is the problem with this approach, okay? When I say we, and, and, and I'm not alone here, when I say we ought to be allowing our kids to take more risks appropriate to their age, you say this with a recognition, every so often something bad will happen. And this is the real trade-off. This is the real trade-off. Okay? Uh, every so often a kid will get snatched. I think it's better to have the kid walk two blocks to school with that slight risk than hover over the child on those two blocks. I think it's better for the kid but every so often something bad will happen. And I think it's, it's obviously it's a personal trade-off, but to some, ex to some extent also I think it's become a social issue and it's really, hard to, it's really hard, hard to draw the appropriate lines. I'll come back to There's another question and then let me come back to it. Yeah. Well, and the very real uh, problems that, that uh, school violence has caused since Columbine. I mean, you're responding to real problems. The argument is we're probably overdoing it. Okay, that's my next slide. Can, can I, 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 I think yeah, the answer is yes, but it has more to do with other kinds of policies than family relations per se. But good point. Yes. Okay. Uh, measurably, uh, middle class kids are much, more, much less likely now to work in summers than we were when we, when we grew up. No question. And it's, it, there are a number of factors involved. Uh, legislation may be one of the factors involved. Literal changes. You can't get a job delivering a new, newspaper anymore. I mean, they pulled it away from kids. Okay. Uh, literally um, 20 years ago. And newspapers are now delivered, well, to the extent newspapers are delivered at all, uh, they're delivered now by adults driving cars. Okay? So uh, legislation which limits the age of, of formal employment may be a factor. Changes in the actual work setting, another factor. And parents and kids are actually more bent on using summers for, quote, more productive activities that are going to look better on college applications. I think this is actually wrong. I share your implicit belief that it was better when they were working. And, yeah, it would address some of the issues that I'm talking about, at least in part. I don't think this is a fear problem per se, but it is another aspect of the way that uh, uh, parenting styles have changed. And that leads into one final element on this topic. There is now, and your, your comments are quite appropriate, there is now a little bit of pushback 
Some of you may have seen, I think it was literally three days ago, an article in the New York Times about a guy in Silicon Valley who set up a a playground in his home. He's quite wealthy, which is, I mean, his his motif is anti-helicopter parents. And he set up a playground to which neighborhood kids are invited. Uh, it's a bit dangerous. Uh, they climb up on a roof and they do all sorts of things. And his argument is twofold. His argument is twofold. We've got to let kids take more risks. Every so often, they'll fall off the roof. They may break a leg. We used to break limbs all the time. And it was unpleasant, but no big deal. Okay? So let them take more risks. The, 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 the benefits to their Confidence and maturity outweigh the dangers, point one. Point two, these, these, these experiments are also deliberately trying to cut in the, into the isolation with, within neighborhoods that I discussed last time because the, 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 the invitation is for the whole neighborhood to feel part of this effort. Needless to say, some of the parents he encounters don't like this at all and won't let their kids go. He's not solving the problem, but there is some pushback. Uh, particularly on the West Coast, California, Oregon, etc., that's quite interesting and, and, and worth following because more and more people are, are aware that we probably have a bit of an issue here. Okay. Then the other big realm. So I've talked about parents. I've talked about kids. The other big realm in which American fearfulness shows does have to do with various kinds of policy. The second reason I became interested in fearfulness, I was first drawn in because of working on the history of American parenting. The other reason that I was drawn in was a sense that our reactions to 9-11 were not, and, and let me be very careful here, fearfulness was an understandable reaction. I'm not trying to exempt myself from understandable emotion. But I believe that aspects of her reactions were unduly fearful, uh, encouraged to some extent by the political apparatus. Um, I believe that the entry into war in Iraq in 2003 was a product of government manipulation and public fearfulness and that it was a mistake. And I believed that well before we went in. Um, so I thought that we were beginning to develop a situation in which uh, the political structure did have the capacity to play on fears, often with perfectly good intentions, but they did have a, the capacity to play on fears in ways that were not desirable, either from the standpoint of a solid uh, public political structure or from the standpoint of some key policies. Our reactions to 9-11, as I briefly suggested last time, our reactions to 9-11 were noticeably different, um, not entirely different, but noticeably different from our reactions to attacks on Pearl Harbor several decades earlier. Uh, they reflected fearfulness. They reflected um, uh, the greater willingness of government to play on fear rather than to reassure. They reflected the extent to which we don't trust government to reassure us in any event. All right. um, interesting, specific. 
which I'm sure you've noticed. Um, have you ever wondered why over the last decade to 15 years, the word hero in, um, in, in American English has become totally denatured? Okay. It's not necessarily an issue. If we want to have the word lose value, that's fine. But we now call people heroes who do nothing in particular except serve in the military. Okay. And I'm not, I'm not panning them. They deserve some credit. But the automatic application of the word hero to these folks is sort of revealing. It may be, I think it is, in part a guilt statement. We no longer have a draft. Most of us don't do this stuff. We don't want to do this stuff. And therefore, we feel guilty about those who do. And we want a particularly glamorous label to pin on them. But it may also be a sense that they're doing stuff that we're now afraid to do. And they are heroes because our level of capacity, and our level of ability to, 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 to deal with fear um, has diminished. And obviously, and here I'm not trying to maybe please shoot at me, that's fine, but uh, uh, one partisan remark I, I think is, is unavoidable. The performance we saw at the Republican convention in the summer, the speaker after speaker, Gingrich, okay, Juliana, as well as Trump himself, as the quotes indicate, the speakers who were trying to tell the American people, A, you are afraid, B, you should be afraid, and C, if you're not afraid, I'm going to make you that way, was truly appalling. Whatever your beliefs about the soundness of their platforms in other respects, crime is not going up. It's gone up a little bit in the last two years, but it's way below levels 25 years ago. Okay, Statements that... Murder rate is up, aside from the last two years, are simply factually inaccurate. Okay, Statements that terrorism poses a massive threat to most Americans are incorrect. Okay. So to the extent that part of our political response has now been taken over by people who are willing to throw fear around, I think is, is, is troubling. I mean, all of us are trying to figure out what our political mood is, how we can address it more constructively. We clearly have some issues that many of us were not adequately aware of before the, uh, the current turmoil. But the existence of objectively unwarranted fear and the willingness of some politicians to play on that unwarranted fear is, I think, a genuine national issue. So my points are threefold. Once we've established that a level of fearfulness has, has developed um, over several decades with the factors that we talked about last time, responsible at least in part. The results impinge on the quality of parenting. The re results impinge on some kids and their psychological well-being. And the results impinge on our political structure and at least some kinds of policies. We have a fear problem, I think. I think we know at least some of the components of that problem, some of the reasons it's arisen. And then the question is, and here I rely on you 
at least in large part, the question is, to the extent you agree with this, what can we do about it? What can we do about it? Questions or comments? Okay. And I also am not eager to have this made partisan because I agree with you entirely. We're in this dilemma, and we've lost confidence in government. It's a vicious circle. But we're in this dilemma in part because we've allowed polarization to occur uh, without necessarily always huge gaps actually existing on major issues. The only thing I would add, and I'm, I'm not wanting, because I agree with you, the only thing I would add is it's very difficult to have this bridging discussion when some political elements are trying to tell people to be more fearful than they need to be. We would need to agree, and, and I know many Republicans do agree. Some of them didn't go to Cleveland precisely for this reason. Uh, we need to agree that let's talk about problems, let's not talk about scare tactics, and then maybe we can, we can agree to, to bridge on some of those problems as well. Well, okay, okay, look. Yeah, fine. Yeah, fine. Okay. But tell me, tell me where Democrats are playing fears the way Giuliani and Gingrich tried to do at the convention. I don't think they are. Oh, yeah. I talked about that last time. Yep. I agree. We talked about that last time. Yes. 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 Yes, I agree. Oh, no. No dispute. No dispute. It's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a periodic issue in American politics, and it's not just on one side. Agree entirely. Well, I I I agree at least in in part. Sure. But I would also argue that the transformation of belief is very complicated, and I don't think, for example, I do not agree that there's a straight-line historical evolution in American beliefs from the Civil War to the present. For example, if you take the topic uh, religiosity, belief, commitment to a formal religion and behavior, at least church attendance according, we've had a whole variety of ups and downs. Okay, Went up in the 20s went way up in the 70s, 80s, 90s, it's now dropping a bit. But there's no systematic, we are, by, by the standards of world industrial societies, we remain an unusually religious society. Okay, So basic beliefs, yeah, but we also have to recognize that they're complicated and simple patterns of evolution are not likely to work. Okay, okay, so just... So we don't work because we're going to run out of time, and I'll take some more questions, but just a couple of things. Uh, Amy mentioned, and I agree entirely, one, one way we address this problem, and you said this directly, and I want to echo it, is simply to talk about it. Okay? Groups like this, but hopefully other settings as well. You know, we don't all have to agree, but to the extent that we're talking about something that is not so, uh, an emotional component that has gone beyond factual necessity, talking about it is one of the ways we address it. Then I do think parents can be urged to reconsider their behaviors a little bit, whether it's grandparental intervention or what, okay? I deeply believe, I deeply believe 
that one of the messages, and this is linking last time's discussion to today, one of the messages, many of us need to pay more attention to neighborhood relationships. I really do believe that the deterioration of the neighborhood is something. That's something that you can address without necessary partisanship. You don't need the government to do it. Let's get a greater sense that we know our neighbors and have some sense of security as we know them. That's exactly what that means. We have become too isolated. We don't join enough things. And particularly in our neighborhoods, we've, we've, uh, we, we've raised the drawbridge. We don't have enough interaction with our neighbors. We often don't even know our neighbors. And that, that's one of the reasons we end up being insecure about the immediate environment. That's addressable. But, but, and, and, and again, and again, and again, it, is, it, it infects the larger political processes as well. One of the ways, one of the ways to address this issue is to try to use schools, but also family settings and others, to try to return people to some respect for data. Um, I mean, that's the, we've, we've got a set of emotional reactions that have now been largely un, 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 unmoored from objective reality, and we need to try to reduce that gap, and it's a, it's a real challenge. I think we need to, to close, I believe. Well, I want to thank you so much, and this is My just a small uh, token of our appreciation, and we hope you'll come back someday. I would, we hope I would we enjoy didn't. it. And thank you all for coming. And I know he'll stay around for a little bit, but on behalf of Westminster, thank you very thank much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.